Father, we come now before you, before your word. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, thank you that by your Holy Spirit you enable us to know spiritual truths, Lord, that are wonderful, precious, sweet. Lord, we pray this morning that we would not have hard hearts, Lord, and that we would not resist your teaching, but Lord, that you would give us soft hearts to receive what you have to speak to us this morning. God, I pray for your help that I might proclaim your word faithfully, that Christ would be lifted up in our midst. Lord, be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. My son Eli had a doctor's appointment, actually a dentist appointment this week. Um, He's seven and his teeth are coming in. His two lower front teeth are coming in, but uh, his baby teeth haven't fallen out. As a matter of fact, until this week, they hadn't even been loose. And I, as a doing this for the first time around, had no idea how serious this was or not. So I called the dentist, made up an appointment. I, I was hoping they could just call me back and talk me through it, but they couldn't. They had to set up an appointment. So, um, so we set them up to take him in on Thursday. And you know, my poor little boy, he just hates being treated for things like cuts and bruises and, you know, band-aids. And he just, he hates it. And I thought, oh Lord, if they have to take out four of his little teeth to make room for those big honking ones that are sticking up through his gums right now, oh Lord, have mercy on him. I just wanted so much for him to not have to go through that. I wanted so much for him to not go through that pain and that uh, trial. And I realized that it's just a little window into my heart. That's how I often think about him and Katie. As a parent, I want them to not have to go through trials and loss. I hope that as they go to school, they don't have to face mockery and scorn from their peers at school. I, I pray as they grow that they won't have to face the sufferings of disappointment, of dashed hopes and broken hearts. I'll be honest with you, I think, haven't they already seen enough? Haven't they lost enough? And you know, it's not a bad instinct for a parent to feel this way about their children. Goodness, it's far better than neglecting them or not caring at all what happens to them. But as I examined my heart this week and as we looked at our, as I was studying this passage, I saw in it that there's a deeper longing in my heart. I just want my life to be free from suffering and trial altogether. I want it to be successful. I want it to be triumphant. Even the trials, I want to be able to say, I've overcome them and look at all the good that they've produced in my life. I want it to be easy and carefree. I think we live in a world where this is often the subtext that life is supposed to work. It is supposed to work out well. Even the hard things produce good things. 
And if there's something wrong, there must be a problem, and the problem has to be fixed, or we sue somebody. I think we spend in our culture a lot of time avoiding pain and suffering. And you know, I think we can even import this into the church and think that, well, isn't this what God wants for us? God has saved us from sin. God has saved us from our foolishness. God has, in Christ, given us a new life. It gives us hope that God will be good to us. Not only in our eternal salvation, but in our everyday life. And again, this is not an untrue thing that God would be good to us in our everyday life. And yet, we expect God to preserve us from every pain and trial. To preserve us and rescue us from every distress quickly. And when he doesn't, we blame. We reject him. We withdraw from him. I think we often go through our life rather than asking the question that I think the Bible wants us to ask, which is, how can we glorify God in whatever our situation? We ask ourselves and God the question, how can I avoid pain in this situation? Here's your test. Think about how you pray. When you have an evaluation at work, As you think about your kid going off to junior high, as you go on a date, or nowadays a dating online match moment, I don't even know what that is. When you go into your doctor's office for your routine evaluation or for something that you don't know quite what it is. When you launch out on a new business venture, set off to a new place to live, what do you pray for? Do you pray for anything other than God's help that your endeavors would be successful, that your problems would be fixed? I know that I often Don't pray for much more than that. Maybe you're like me. Thankfully, God has spoken to us in his word. And so if you want to turn with me, page 953, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. We're looking at verse 6 to the end of the chapter. And as we turn there, I want to remind you, because this is actually the end of a section. The first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians are kind of an opening salvo. And then he, you will see a strong transition, beginning of chapter 5. And in this, Paul has been addressing broadly their understanding of the Christian life, of what Christian leadership ought to look like, and specifically of what the gospel that they believe actually is and promises. And for much of this, he has been uncovering in their thinking and in their hearts that their understanding is far more Corinthian than it is Christian. Far more Corinthian than it is cruciform, shaped by the cross. 
One commentator explained that for the Corinthian church, it seemed that their values were form above content, prestige above humility, stoicism above passion, an organizing philosophy of wisdom above frank frank confession of ignorance and the limitations of human knowledge, rhetoric above truth, money above people, and reputation above integrity. The church had in many ways adopted the thinking of the culture that they had lived in, and one of the effects of it was that they thought that the kingdom had already come. They took the successful get-ahead culture of Corinth, and they imported it into their understanding of God's kingdom. And they thought that the kingdom that was that is future has now become theirs in the present. They wanted to get ahead for God to be sure, but by the means of the Corinthian thought patterns. Paul has been unpacking this and attacking it over and over again in the last three and a half chapters. And here he ends with a very passionate and very personal appeal to the Corinthians to consider what God has actually called them to. So let's read this passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another, one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 
Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not their talk, of the, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? In this argument, there's actually only two central commands that he said. And one is an implication that you might not be puffed up. The central command here is what we see in verse... I took off my glasses. What is it? Uh, 16. Verse 16. Imitate me. Imitate me. This is, the, this is Paul's passionate appeal to the Corinthian church is to say, you have been thinking so much about your own culture. You've been so influenced by the ways of thinking around you and maybe even by leaders among you, as we see at the end of this chapter. But would you, my beloved children, imitate me? Follow my example. Not in boasting, Not in self-promotion, not in self-exaltation, not in self-dependence, but in self-denial and sacrifice, following in the footsteps of the Savior. Imitate me in following Christ. Paul unpacks this passage. There are two different things I want to look at this morning as we look at what it is that Paul is saying as he's doing this. I want to look first at the relationship on which this appeal was grounded. And secondly, I want to look at the pattern that he put forward for us to imitate. So let's look first at the relationship that Paul had. The relationship that gave the grounds for this imitation. First, what we see is that Paul loved the Corinthian church. To them, to him, they were like family. You see it in verse 6. My beloved, my brothers, I've done this to you because you are my brothers in Christ. I don't lord it over you. I am not simply trying to come in and fix you as some authority. I am your brother in this. And then as we saw in 14 through 17, he says, not only am I your brother, but I'm your father verse 15 when it says uh, I have become your father. The word there is the same word to, to birth a child. And it's interesting the way Paul puts it, isn't it? He didn't say, I have birthed you. He said, I have become your father because the gospel has begotten you as my child. Do you see how he says that? I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul isn't saying, I'm appealing to you because I have done all these great things in your life. Paul is saying, no, the gospel has done great things. And I've had the privilege of being a vehicle through which the gospel has worked in you. And I love you. And I love you enough not to back down. I love you enough not to say, hey, i just given my opinion. Do your own thing. He loves them enough to say, I will come. It will either be with a rod or it will be with gentleness. It will either come with strength of rebuke 
or it will come with the gentleness of embrace. He loves them that much. And he does say, I have become your father, so imitate me. This was a cultural pattern that in our modern world we have very little sense of. But in the ancient world, and in fact in most places in the world, in most times, sons would father would follow in the footsteps of their father. Think of how in the English language we have some great last names. Baker and Smith. Do you know why they have that last name? Because their dad was the baker. And then the son was the baker. And the son after him was the baker. And so you just kept your name. Or in the Scandinavian countries. How many of you are named Peterson or Svensson or Olsen or Olafsson or whatever? I'm the son of my father and that's my identity. And I follow in his footsteps and I bear his name. Think of even how the crowds responded to Jesus when he began his ministry. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Shouldn't he be in his woodshed, workshop, working? What is he doing? Preaching. This isn't what he's done. So Paul is leaning on a cultural pattern of imitation. He's saying, I have become your father. Not a pedagogue, not a, the the word here for um, countless guides might be best translated a governess or a nanny, someone who takes over the full-time care and moral development of a child for a period of time, but not forever. And in the ancient Near East, there's a clear distinction between who is the father and who was the caretaker on a day-to-day basis. And Paul says, You have many who can come and teach you and take care of you. He's not trying to pick a fight with the other teachers, Apollos and Peter and others, saying they're they're a blessing to you, but you only have one father. Imitate me. Finally, I want you to see that in his relationship, his focus was not on himself. It's so easy for us, isn't it, as people to try to sort of leverage our personal relationships to get someone else to do what we want to do. Hey, I did all this for you. Come on. Give me a little give me a little something in return. If we have authority over someone, we can wield that in a way to manipulate or to control. Paul isn't doing any of that. So striking in verse 14. I don't write this that you would be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of who you are. Don't be ashamed of what God has done in your life. Don't be ashamed of me. I don't want this to be a guilt trip for you. It is instead an invitation. I want to draw out of you the best. I want to elicit you to find what is right and good and true. And to pursue that. He intervenes for their good. The thought that Paul would be wielding his relationship with them for his own benefit flies in the whole face of the passage. Because that's not the pattern. I wonder if you've ever had a relationship like this in your life. 
I'm thankful to say that I've had many. I sat down this week and I counted four turning point incidents in my life where I had, whether mentors or friends, men and women both, who spoke into my life. I can think of Bill who confronted me about my lack of responsibility in a dating relationship outside of a dormitory at college. I talked of, I, I, I thought of a dear sister who sat me down when I was a young, foolish, and one of those really dangerous guys who was really nice and uh, didn't quite know what he was doing, um, and said, you've got to learn how to have more self-control so you can love your sisters well and not be confusing. Um, I can think of a couple who called me on a decision that I was making, and they said, we think you're doing this for selfish ambition and not for a desire for the kingdom. I can think of a time here at Trinity when I was confronted by a brother about my lack of grace. And you know, sometimes I saw the wisdom of their statements in the moment. Sometimes it took years for me to really understand it. But each of them said, you're not living up to your profession to follow Christ. You're being foolish when you think you are wise. You're being proud instead of humble. I'm thankful for them. I'm humbled by them. And I want to imitate them. I think Paul's example is one for us to consider as well. How we might bring these dynamics into our relationships. Obviously, this applies to a discipling relationship or uh, to church leadership as we lead the church, that we might do this, sense both the weightiness and the responsibility to have these kinds of relationships. For any of you who are parents, you recognize this is a part of what we do in parenting as well, isn't it? But also in spiritual friendships. The examples I gave, many were mentors, but one was just a friend, a sister, who sat me down and helped me see something that I couldn't see. And I wonder if we have those kinds of relationships that are based in love, that are calling us to live out the profession that God has given us, willing to confront where we think wrongly, willing to love Not to shame, but to encourage and exhort one another to follow Christ. Do we value people doing this in our own lives? Do we value, do we seek to cultivate these kinds of relationships as we initiate them with others? But this is only setting up the content of the passage, the rest of the passage, isn't it? Because this is the basis upon which the appeal to imitate Paul is laid in this familial, loving relationship. But then we see Paul saying, what is it that you're to imitate with me? And he sets up this contrast. He says, the pattern for you that you are to imitate in me is one of boasting in nothing but in the cross of Jesus Christ and him crucified and walking a path of life that is patterned by that crucified Messiah. As you look, verses 7 through 13, you see this constant contrast. You, we, you, we, you, we. 
He's saying, there's a pattern that I see in your life that looks like this. But the pattern that I have lived looks like this. He says, imitate this. What is this? Well, let's look at it. Let's look at this contrast together. The Corinthian way. Start with me in verse 7. Who sees anything different? That is, who sees anything special in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast of it as if you didn't? The very core of the Corinthian problem was that of pride. They had an inflated sense of self-worth. Like Tom Hanks in Castaway sitting on this beach saying, Look what I have created when he lights a bonfire. But we think about everything in our life that way. And rather than seeing that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, we take these things and we make them ours. And then we say, look what a great thing I am. And when we do this, we fall into all the patterns that we've been talking about for the last two and a half months. We compare to one another. Am I ahead of them or not? We compete. We lift ourselves up by putting other people down. Taking credit for the things that we have that other people don't so that we can feel more important. We build our identities on things that separate us from others. And in doing so, we jockey for greatness. And that pride is expressed in a kind of arrogance that builds one another up It's fascinating thinking about how to read this passage because if you've ever wondered whether sarcasm is okay, for those of us who are in New England, we love it, right? Paul got sarcastic here, right? He got ironic here. In verse 8, he's saying something that is both true and untrue at the same time about them. Already you have all that you want. Already you are rich. Already you have begun to reign, which is the best translation of that phrase. You have begun to reign with Christ. And look, if we went back, if you were here two weeks ago when Greek, uh, when Greg preached on the end of chapter 3, you see this, right? All things are yours in Christ. So in one level, this is true. And yet... Because of the way they held it, because they took these things and rather than seeing them as received from the Lord, they took credit for them and they puffed themselves up with it. In fact, they were empty rather than full of all that Christ had done for them. Their boasting empties themselves. And like a souffle before it's pricked and collapses... Like cotton candy that looks so good and yet disappears in your mouth as soon as you touch it. Paul says, this is what your lives are. In your pride, you have built a great facade and there is no substance in it. You have a misperception of yourselves and the fruit of it is destructive. You haven't even gotten what you truly want. 
for what you want is true wisdom, true spiritual life, true greatness, true power. And in fact, you have none of those things because you have sought to build them yourself and take them from the world and establish yourself in the worldly pattern rather than receiving these things from Christ. And Paul says you are in grave danger because if you follow in this pattern, you are robbing God of his glory. You are denying all of the things that he has done for you. And you are refusing to see how he has done it and embrace him as your pattern. And so Paul says, you have done all of these things. This has been your pattern. But we have done these things. We have followed a different pattern, the way of the cross. What is this characterized by? Strikingly, in verse 9, God has exhibited, God has appointed us. His starting point is not, look what we have done, but this is what God has done. God called us into this. God has called us into this path. We probably wouldn't have chosen it in our own wisdom, but God has called us to this. It is a part of his plan, and it is good. And what does it look like? Friends, are you ready for all these? We have become a spectacle. Becoming a spectacle usually is not a good thing. And here, Paul certainly means it that way. The world looks at you and thinks, are you kidding me? Seriously? Really? Foolishness? Weakness? Dishonor? We've become like a freak show. Whatever that is, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Paul goes on and he says, I've embraced the suffering, physical suffering, hardship, hunger, and thirst, no clothing, no shelter. I've experienced the scorn and derision of other people. I worked with my hands like a slave. It's like President Obama vacuuming his own office. And even we are way too democratic to get, that actually doesn't strike us as odd. We'd be like the king of England cleaning his toilet. That's the kind of shockingness of a spiritual teacher working with his hands to earn his own in the eyes of the Corinthians. He worked with his hands. He was reviled. He was slandered. He was persecuted. And then one of my most favorite, though most striking verses. We have become and still are, verse 13, the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Have you ever left a coffee mug in a hot window with a little milk in the bottom of it for a couple of weeks? (laughs) Have you ever cleaned out the grease trap under your sink? Have you ever walked the streets of a third world country where you share the sidewalk or the road, there's no difference, with 
scooters and bikes and cars and trucks and cattle and sheep and donkeys and chickens. Have you ever seen what you would scrape off the bottom of your shoe at the end of the day? That's what the refuse of all things is. That's what the scum of the world is. They are things that are not only ugly and distasteful, but they're actually offensive. And Paul says this is what God has appointed for us. This is the pattern that God has set for us to do it. And do you see there is no room for pride here? There's no room for boasting in self. There is instead a refining work that empties us of all of our self-promotion and self-exaltation and self-dependence and, dare I say it, self-esteem. It refines us and empties us of self and fills us instead with something else. It fills us with love. Do you see? This is what the end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13 say. In the midst of all of this suffering that I endure for the sake of the gospel, when I am treated like the scum of the earth, when people look at me and think I'm a freak show, I seek to bless them. I want their good. I entreat them. That is, I appeal to them to see the folly of their way and the wisdom of the cross. It fills us with love that enables us to endure. Because if our identity is in how great we are, then when people treat us like the stuff on the road, then we're shattered. But if we know that this is what God has appointed to us and we know that in Christ we have something far better, far more, far richer than anything else, then we can be patient and enduring even in those trials. I think of a man named Charles Simeon. If you ever want to know about him, John Hinkson did a master's a master's thesis on him. It's a great story. Actually, John's thing is a good read, too. But Charles Simeon was a pastor in England uh, a couple of de- centuries ago. And uh, he, uh, he served in a... He was wonderfully converted during his time in college. Um, and afterwards, he ended up staying and was... Uh, surprisingly, at a fairly young age, able to take the pastoral position of a church, Trinity Church, right near Cambridge University. But this is what his ministry life looked like. For the first 10 years, the members of the congregation didn't want him. Back then, you could reserve, purchase, own a pew in the church. So they locked their pews. If you've ever been to the Old North Church in Boston, they have the locking pews still. Um, It would be like there's a door along the aisles, and you couldn't get in without getting over these doors. And for the first 10 years, the entire pews were empty. And people came and sat on the floor to be preached to. Not the members, but others. For 10 years, 
He preached to a church that didn't want him. That finally changed some. Yet he still, 30 years into his ministry, went through another season where everyone sought to cast him out of his position. When he turned 47, he developed a physical disability that made him almost unable to speak. After he preached, he could only speak in a whisper. This went on for 13 years. He was so looked down upon in the university community, though he was a graduate, he was so looked down upon that he remarked once in his journal of the blessing of a colleague who walked with him for 15 minutes around the courtyard of the college because it was the first time it had happened in years. He was so despised and scorned in the university community that even his colleagues would not walk with him around the campus universe, around the campus. And then his biographer writes this, in April 1831, Charles Simeon was 71 years old. He'd been the pastor of Trinity Church for 49 years. He was asked one afternoon by his friend how he had surmounted persecution and outlasted all of the great prejudice against him in his 49-year ministry. And he said to Gurney, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my heart, head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. This is what Paul longed for the Corinthian church. That they would see that his example was one of suffering because he was following Jesus. The one who went first and foremost, who suffered in our place. The echoes of Isaiah 53 ring in our ears that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Don't follow the path of boasting, but instead follow the example of Christ. So what might this look like for us? Friends, we need to do some heart work about who we are. Are you willing to walk around with a t-shirt that says, scum of the earth, spectacle before men and angels? A t-shirt is cheap. It's not really our identity. But more importantly, how about those that you interact with in the world? Whether it be your families, your colleagues, your potential employers, your classmates in the schoolroom and in the hallways. Friends, Jesus' call here is one that is striking because to follow him makes us aliens and strangers in the words of the apostle Peter aliens and strangers in our world 
It ought to feel weird to follow Christ in our world. Sometimes I fear that we have bought into a lie that somehow, if we can do our Christianity just well enough and with enough wisdom and savvy, that we'll be accepted and people will think well of us. But that's probably not really the case. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The gospel cuts across every culture. We will find the places where the the exclusivity of Christ or a faithfulness about teaching about how we live our lives sexually, how we interact with the world and other religions, how we forgive our enemies. All of these things will be striking and countercultural in various places, in various ways. And if we think that by faithfulness we're going to be okay and there won't be a cost, we haven't heard Paul this morning. We may become marginalized in our culture. Friends, we need to be ready for this as a church. I don't want to be doom and gloom. I don't want to try to fight the culture war. I want to follow Christ. But we need to recognize that following Christ may lead us outside the camp. It may lead us to places where all we have is the power of the gospel in our lives as we live humbly, brokenly, in weakness, and being seen as foolish in the world. Friends, this is what Paul did because he followed Jesus. And this is what Jesus did for us. Because as offensive as the cross and following the cross can be in our world, the deepest offense in the world is far more profound, isn't it? The thing that most offends us and our friends and our world is not a particular stance on this or that issue. But it's that we are owning the fact that we are sinners. And that sin is so offensive that it deserved not a pass, not a warning, but it earned for us the death of the Son of God himself. When we admit that our sin cripples us, that our pride makes us empty and puffed up rather than substantive and real, when we recognize that our sin makes our wisdom foolishness and our strength weakness and our spirituality empty and exposes us as, in fact, offensive to God, And helpless. We then see how wonderful a Savior we have. Because He stepped into that. Jesus took the offense for us, didn't He? Jesus was scorned and mocked. He was the Son of God and the Creator of the world, and yet we esteemed Him not. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. He was taken outside the city and crucified on a hill. 
bearing the wrath of God against the offense of our sin. And though our pride is pricked and our backs get up, we want desperately to find some other way. This alone is the only way that we can be saved. And so, we find in this salvation not only our greatest hope, but our only pattern. There's no easier way than following Christ because there's no better way than following Christ. I think about this now sometimes when I pray for my kids. Not often. But I pray not that their life would be easy, but that they would know. They would know more of this Savior who loved them so. And that the hearts and the pains of their lives would drive them to him. That they might know the fellowship of suffering and perhaps attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let me close with the words of 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I invite you to do your searching work in our hearts. Lord, help us to see how much we still cling to a vision of a world where life will be easy, where success is expected, where triumph is known and banked on. Lord, help us to see how much we want to avoid suffering and trial in this life and how often we are derailed from the path of discipleship and following you because of that commitment in our heart. And Jesus, help us to see you, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. Lord, help us to return to you and to see the path that you walked for us and to walk that path Lord, for your sake, for the gospel's sake, for your glory. Lord, may we not mind a little suffering in this life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.